Hello, and a very good day to you. My name is Jim Harris, and this is Heritage Bible Radio. Heritage Bible Radio is an extension of Heritage Bible Church in Boise, where it's my joy to serve as the teaching pastor. Every day, we devote our radio time to studying a portion of the Word of God so you can know Him better through Jesus Christ and serve Him better through your local church. This week on Heritage Bible Radio, we're completing what we began in June of 2019, almost two years ago. We will complete the expository preaching series through the Gospel of Mark. Now, the last 12 verses of this book are not in the original manuscripts, but they were added later, and they're marked as such in your Bibles. Have you ever heard someone argue that we can't rely on our Bibles because after years and years of being passed down and translated, there's no way to know what it originally said? Well, if you know the facts, they tell an entirely different story. In fact, no other historical work of literature even comes close by comparison. Pastor Jim will take this opportunity at the end of Mark to do something a little bit different this week, and you'll likely learn something about how we know that the Bibles we now have represent extremely accurately what was originally written over 2,000 years ago. Here is today's slice of the sermon entitled, The Perfect End of Mark. Next to the New Testament, there are more copies of Homer's Iliad than any other ancient piece of literature. There are a whopping 643 copies of the Iliad in existence, compared to 25,000 of the New Testament. And by the way, the oldest copy we have of the Iliad is from the 13th century A.D., and Homer wrote it in the 8th century B.C. So there's 2,100 years between when Homer wrote it and the, and the oldest copy that we have compared to the New Testament where we have a span of, I don't know, 40 to 100 years from when it was written. Now go on to a college campus these days and quote Homer and you'll be considered scholarly. Go on to a college campus and quote Jesus and you'll be considered silly and uneducated. See, it it has a lot to do with what the facts really are. Now, what's so amazing about this is that these are all hand copies. And you say, well, you mean that in all of that copying, there were no errors? No, we don't say that. They made mistakes. They, They did introduce errors. That's why when we speak of inerrancy, we talk about the original writings. Sometimes they would put in a wrong word. You've done that. Um, Sometimes they would put in a a wrong spelling. There was no scribe named autocorrect, so they had to figure it out on their own. Sometimes something might get left out. You know, you could finish one line that ended with a certain word and then have the next line end with the same word, and you could skip the line in between. Somehow that, that, that could happen occasionally. Sometimes uh, they would even write something in the margins to clarify something for the next scribe that would come along. But, but guess what? We have so many manuscripts from so many places over such a span of time, we can tell when the mistakes popped up. Plus, if something shows up in a later manuscript and it's not in any of the earlier ones, we know that it was added later. 
and we know where the copying may have gone wrong. We are so accustomed to just clicking print, uh, and what a crisis for us when the, when the printer doesn't work. This was all done by hand, literally, for centuries. Now, studying all of this stuff is called the science of textual criticism. Let me give you an illustration. You're rooting around in a library somewhere. You find this manuscript, and in the Greek it says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You'd read that and say, hmm, what's that about? And let's say you found another fragment of a manuscript, and it says, it's easier for a cord to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you know it's impossible to put a camel through the eye of a needle, but if you took the cord and you maybe broke it down into its elements and worked very, very patiently and worked hard for a long time, maybe you could get the cord through the eye of a needle. So you have these two manuscripts, they're quoting the same thing that Jesus said, and they disagree between cord and camel. Which would be the correct one? Well, not cord, because no one would read cord and change it to camel. But you can see how somebody might want to turn camel into cord. Very, very hard for a rich man to get over his love of his riches and turn to faith in Christ. Oh, and by the way, there's only a tiny difference between uh, the word for cord and the word for camel in the Greek language. So by comparing manuscripts, we can see when somebody introduces a change. That's the fruit of the study of textual criticism. Camel is right. We also know that, know that because of the text, because the text says it is impossible with man, and that only fits camel, as I said. Now, there are other principles of uh, comparing manuscripts, doing textual criticism, if you will. One principle is choose earlier manuscripts over later ones. If one it comes from a, a, a family tree of copying that only goes back 200 years, and one comes from a family tree of copying that goes back 1,000 years, if they differ and everything else is the same, you would take the older versus the newer. Another principle is choose the shorter one over the longer one, because scribes as I said, would sometimes write a note between lines or in the margin to add something to clarify, and then that could be eventually inserted into the text. But they would never, out of their reverence for the Word of God, they would never remove anything from the text. So two manuscripts, everything else being equal, choose the shorter over the longer. Another one is choose the more difficult over the easier one. Because you can explain someone intentionally or unintentionally uh, making something sound easier to understand than making something sound harder to understand, like camel and cord. Now, why talk about all this? Because we have here at the end of Mark this long textual variant, as we call it, 
stuck onto the end of Mark, and we know it did not appear in the original written by Mark. That's why our modern translations put it in brackets. And, and by the way, if you look down at the bottom of whatever page in your Bible where the Gospel of Mark ends, you might uh, find yet another little section in the New American Standard Bible. It's actually printed in a, in a different type. It's another ending that showed up in the Parade of Manuscripts, a, sh- a short one. So you have Mark's ending, and then you have a long ending, and then you have a short ending. Well, if it's not in the original, why is it there? Well, how about we turn back to what Mark wrote? Mark chapter 16, verse 8. This is where we ended last Lord's Day, Mark's closing statement. They went out, they refers to the women who were at the tomb, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now that's it. That's where Mark quit. But you can understand that folks started to say, that just doesn't seem like an ending. That seems like he, he came to a stop sign, not to a destination. Well, notice the language is very dramatic. The resurrection was shocking. Like we said last time, they didn't come to look for the resurrected Jesus. They came to take care of His dead body. They didn't yet believe until He rose from the dead. The women are convinced of the resurrection by the empty tomb that they saw and by the spectacular announcement from the angels that they had heard. And it has dawned on them in their terrified bewilderment. They're gripped by this unthinkable reality of the resurrection. And a few steps later, as they're fleeing from the tomb, they're totally overwhelmed by joy. They're they're speechless. And so is Mark. He's done. Verse 8 says, they said nothing to anyone. I have heard it said that that's yet another miracle. It's a group of women, and they said nothing to anyone. Well, that apparently was good enough for Mark. Mark didn't have anything left to say either. How fitting that this end is so dramatic and so powerful that neither the women nor Mark have anything else to say. Yeah, the women did go and tell who they were supposed to, but that's more of the story. So what needs to be added? You have an empty tomb, speaks for itself. You have an angelic announcement directly from God via His messenger, and you have the eyewitnesses. So what is Mark doing just stopping like that? Well, he told you at the very beginning what he was working toward. Why did he write this book? Why did he pick Peter's brain so thoroughly to put this together? What did he want you to be convinced of? Well, the connection to chapter 16, verse 8 is Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He describes his own gospel, and verse 1 stands like a title over it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the point Mark wanted to make. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Did he make his point? Are you convinced? Is it enough? 
Did these 16 chapters get it done for you? Is it clear that Jesus is the Son of God? If you would like this message on Compact Disc, let me know and we'll send it to you. You'll receive the entire message, not just the portion on today's program. You can order by phone at 353-4036 or by writing to us at 7071 West Emerald, Boise, Idaho, 83704 or on the internet at hbc-boise.org. Heritage Bible Radio needs your prayers and your financial support. Once again, you can reach us online at hbc-boise.org or by telephone at 353-4036 or by writing to us at 7071 West Emerald, Boise, Idaho, 83704. And if you need a church home here in the Treasure Valley, I hope you'll visit us any Sunday at 7071 West Emerald. For Heritage Bible Radio, I'm Jim Harris. See you next time. Bye-bye.